This is The Blood Doctor Show. On a Saturday afternoon, a Saturday evening, and this is actually my third attempt, my third try at getting this right because I wanted to enter 2021 with all the positivity, I wanted to enter with all the happiness in the world, and yet one of the worst things that could have occurred for all of us within Suns Nation occurred today, and that is Paul Westfall, legendary Suns icon. I know that legendary icon is redundant, but I truly don't know how else to describe the impact he had on the Suns. Player, coach, advisor. Paul Westfall passed away. Brain cancer, age 70. Paul, we're going to miss you. It's sad. It's awful. It's a difficult thing. And it's a really hard way to begin 2021. The man means a lot to the team, not only as a player, not only as a coach, but just as someone who, when you have someone who not only leads a team as a player and then leads a team as a coach, but is also a genuinely good person and isn't destroyed in the later years by, you know, whatever else. Maybe, you know, his time with the Kings didn't go well, but for the most part, Paul Westfall is really well regarded. And it's rough. It's just, it's sad. It's it's sad to think about this next great version of the Suns that has clearly arrived. Paul's not going to get to see it through. He got to see them. But he's not going to get to see them through. And that sucks. And it's not that he created them or had a hand in it or anything like that, but... Paul Westfall is part of the two best Suns teams ever, basically. Paul won a championship with the Celtics and then was traded to the Suns. And then with the Suns, he was a 20-point scorer and immediately led them to an NBA Finals appearance. Now, we weren't able to take down the Celtics. But when Paul retired, he became a coach. And his first season coaching the Suns, He led them to an NBA Finals appearance. Now they lost to Michael Jordan. Paul, in two scenarios, lost to the great Celtics dynasty. I'm sure the Celtics of the 70s maybe weren't the Celtics of the 60s or 80s, but still a phenomenal team. He himself, a champion of that decade. And then he lost to Michael Jordan and the Bulls. So Paul and... So much of the Suns is the legacy of the runner-up. And I just hope that no one looks at him that way. Because he's meant so much to this team. This is a franchise that is one of the most winning regular season franchise in history. At least before the last decade. And a lot of that is because of Paul Westwell. And again, it doesn't... We don't have the rings. We don't have the banners. And those things are difficult. But a lot of the success that we have had and a lot of the levels that we have been lifted to, much of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is due to Paul Westfall and what he did and how he helped this team. Now, you might say, well, he had nothing to do with the Nash era, blah, 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 but... 
He played on a finals team, on a 70 Suns team that people didn't really imagine as a finals team. And then he coached some really great Suns teams in the 90s. Again, that didn't necessarily win anything, but the first time that the NBA was on a truly national all-the-time stage was the 90s, when even, you know, I as a kid watched Bulls games on WGN in Phoenix, and I understand that WGN was a national station, but the point is, before my time, games weren't even televised. And in the 90s, everything changed to the point where almost everything was televised. And in those years, Paul Westvall helped make the Suns a great team. It didn't work out completely. We didn't win a title. But he did so much for the franchise. And it hurts me that he's not going to be able to participate in this great team. You know, in 1992, his first year, the Suns acquired Charles Barkley. They signed Danny Ainge. They hired Paul Westfall, and they went to the finals. And a lot of Suns fans will tell you, you know, we were this close, if not for this, that, and the other. It was, you know, it was, I mean, it would have been tough to win game seven against Michael Jordan. But the point is, the Suns came about as close as anyone really did. And for all the credit that the Utah Jazz get and the Seattle Supersonics get, for pushing Michael Jordan. The Suns really sort of don't. People sort of forget all that. You know, that team had seven guys scoring in double figures. In 1992. You know, this is post-80s super defensive era. But still pre-offensive boom. That's 90 to 100 points a game from seven guys. It's impressive. So it's sad. And the one positive corollary that I can find, and this doesn't matter, it doesn't count, I understand that. It's not the same. But in 1992, again, the Suns acquired Barkley, Ainge, and Westfall. Last year we hired Monty Williams, so it's a year before. But this year, we acquired Chris Paul. We signed Jay Crowder. Those two moves are similar. Maybe Chris Paul isn't... He's four years older than Barkley was at that time. But that team didn't have a Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. So there are some similarities. And maybe this Suns team can go a little farther than anticipated. Maybe not necessarily this year, but maybe this year. And as a person who loves the Phoenix Suns, I hope no matter what you believe, you're religious, you're not religious, you're spiritual, you're this, you're that, I don't care what it is. I hope that you will agree with me that when this new Suns team reaches its greatest height, that Paul Westfall will still get to enjoy that. I believe in karma, I believe in positive energy, and it's hard for me to not believe that on some level, on some level, the person who helped build the Suns in so many ways, maybe the person most identified with the Suns other than like Jerry Colangelo, 
Paul Westfall is one of the he's 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 he means so much to the Suns. And I just think on some level he's going to see this team. He will be there to watch. He will be there to celebrate when things go right for us. I believe that. Paul Westfall, rest in peace. This is a sad day for Suns fans. But I hope that, if nothing else, this is a good time for people to remember some of the greatness of Paul Westfall, what he brought to the table, and how much he means to a great franchise. You know, in the way that Gary Payton and Sean Kemp are revered within the Sonics. Paul Westvall should be revered with the Suns. George Carl is loved by Sonics fans. Paul Westvall should be loved by Suns fans. And maybe he isn't as well known, but it is deserved. Rest in peace, sir. Everyone within this organization, this organization being the team, being Suns Nation, the fan base. We will cheer for you when we lift that trophy one day, whatever day it is. It is 2021. And it is time to bring in the good energy. It is sad that we lost Paul. We lost Paul. We hate to. It's hard to start a year with that, but that's where we are, and we're going to look at the positive things. Everyone does, at least here in this country, we do the New Year's resolutions. I've got three. Three focused New Year's resolutions that I'm going to put here. Number one. Get a real listener base for this show. And this is easy because you are going to tell someone to listen. You're going to link them to this show. And you're going to say, Oh, did you know about this excellent sports genius? And that's how it's going to happen because then they're going to do the same thing. It's going to be incredible. You won't even realize that it happened. You already did it. You didn't even realize it. I pulled. An Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible on you. And only a few people will understand why that's so funny. But that will be what occurs in 2021. Second thing, lose 50 pounds. Now that may be a personal goal that most people don't need to know about. But hey, broadcasting it more publicly makes me hold myself accountable. Because if... I'm saying in 2022, I need to lose 75 pounds because I gained 25. Well, then it will be easy to throw that in my face. I simply can't have that. So it must be done. It will be done. And then finally, broadcasting this one or putting it out there is stupid and maybe makes me look bad or I don't know. But she who deserves a real engagement ring will get one. 
And it's my fault that she doesn't have one. And we're going to fix it. And now that it's been stated, it can't be undone. Locked in. So, from that positive note, from that incredible note, from that commitment note, here's a horrible commitment note. Jim Harbaugh is getting an extension from Michigan. What? 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 How is that a thing? In what world is that a thing? How can that possibly be? How can it possibly be that everything that has gone on at Michigan since Jim Harbaugh has taken over has been looked at by the boosters and the athletic director and everyone else, the alumni, whoever, and they want five more years of this? How is that a fucking thing? I truly don't understand. I truly don't get it. You know, Michigan has suffered from the Michigan man syndrome. And that is that Michigan alumni and boosters and fans, and I'm one of these people. I'll give myself this at times. I put myself in this group at times. Not that I'm even, I didn't go to Michigan. Fuck do I know? But the point is, I put myself in the group of people who believed that Michigan needed a Michigan man. A Michigan man. A person who coached or was from Michigan and, you know, some had some sort of connection to Bo Schembechler and blah, 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 blah. And essentially the point was that you had to recruit from within the ranks of people who were somehow connected to Michigan. And all of our rivals don't do that. All of our rivals hired the best person for the job. And no matter what, Michigan can't seem to get out of this cycle of the best person for the job might not have a previous connection to Michigan. And I honestly was on board. I was on board with Rich Rodriguez and Brady Hoke and Jim Harbaugh, I thought well, these were all great hires. And I'm I'm left thinking back to the years of Lloyd Carr when I used to get so frustrated that Lloyd Carr would lose to Ohio. We call him fucking Ohio on this show, okay? Bo Beckler style, they're fucking Ohio. And Lloyd Carr would lose to Ohio by a few points here and there, and I would get so frustrated. And now, now I would... I would love that because that that team full of they whoop our ass like every year for a decade now. It's embarrassing, but it's also true. And I don't know what like at what point are we just going to go out there and spend the money to hire the best coach? It's not as if the money doesn't exist. Within this group of boosters, it absolutely does. They just want to give it to a loser. There were, there were embarrassing signs in the beginning. Bowl game losses, 
big game losses that looked really questionable. And everyone would say, well, you know, he needs a couple more years to get his guys. That's what I would say. I was through the roof with this hire. He needs a few more years to get his guys. He's got his guys. He doesn't know how to recruit a quarterback. He doesn't know how to run a vertical offense. He has no clue what he's doing. He'll run, he'll bring in Jabril Peppers to play quarterback and run the ball up the middle on a under center snap. It just, it makes no sense. The offense is terrible. The defense is overrated. And yet, we must have more. There was a time when being a Michigan football fan meant that every season you were going to play no less than three games that somehow impacted the national championship race. Sometimes it was for yourself. Sometimes it was for someone else, but you could play spoiler. You could fuck with Notre Dame, could fuck with Ohio, and you could fuck with Wisconsin or Michigan State. There was always an opportunity to at least be a factor in the national championship race, even if you were not a national championship contender. And now, the Big Ten is so bad. And Michigan is so bad that they're a complete joke. The team this year was a complete joke. And there's no amount of any explanation from COVID, blah, blah, blah. Everyone went through that. Everyone dealt with all of it. So there's no explanation that is acceptable in any way. Jim Harbaugh's a bad coach. He's an overrated coach. And Michigan wants five more years of it. And the thing is, they had these discussions. Number one, let me explain to you how misguided the Michigan boosters are. Because when considering replacing Jim Harbaugh, one name that was floated was Urban fucking Meyer. What? And I'm not trying to disrespect Urban Meyer as a coach. Urban Meyer is obviously a great coach. I hate him a lot. Because he's a phenomenal recruiter and coach. I really hate him a lot. He's awful. He sucks because he's so good. Okay? I respect Urban Meyer as a coach. He obviously knows what the hell he's doing. But in what world would Michigan hire the guy who most recently destroyed them like six years in a row? What are you doing? How is that a thing? How, How would you ever do that? It literally makes no sense. It just, it boggles the mind. You don't say, okay, well, our biggest rivals head coach left for retirement and sat out for a year. We should hire him now. What is that nonsense? I don't, (laughs) and Michigan can sit here and deny that they ever did that, but Let's just be clear. The one time that they considered going outside the Michigan man ranks was to hire 
the coach of their worst enemy. Why not resurrect Woody Hayes and hire him? Like, what are you thinking? Why not hire the gray glasses, whatever his name is, who used to coach Ohio before Urban Meyer? I don't remember his name, and I'm not going to look it up. Trestle or something? Fuck that guy. I'm not looking it up. But why not hire him? Like, you can't hire people who whooped our ass repeatedly. This is the whole reason everyone hated Kevin Durant. And Michigan people are trying to do that. I just... And then instead of just looking somewhere else, hire a young person with new ideas. Just extend Harbaugh five more years, whatever. I am just going to say it right now. I'm not going to stop rooting for Michigan and I'm not going to stop hoping. But I right now officially stop believing in the Michigan football program. I no longer believe that they have any fucking clue what they're doing. That's it. I'm sad to say it, but it is what it is. On another note, quick note before I go on so many tangents. This whole episode is just, I'm all over the place. Some people may not know all of the parlance, if you will, for gambling. I talk a lot about gambling, or I'm trying to talk at least more about gambling. And I don't know if everyone knows all the ins and outs in parlance, so let's go over it real quick. Spread, if you bet the spread, is the number of points, plus or minus the team's final score that you bet. So if a final score between Team A and Team B is Team A 100 points and Team B 90 points, and I bet Team A minus 9, Team A had 100, minus 9 is 91, 91 is more than 90, which is what Team B scored, so Team A wins against the spread. So it's whatever team you bet. Conversely, if I had bet team B plus 9, and they lost by 10 in this scenario, I would lose. Seems very simple, but people seem to get confused with the whole plus minus thing. Over under, if I bet over 200 points between team A and team B, and the final score was 100 to 90, I would lose because I bet over 200 points, and the final score was 190. If I bet under, I would win. Again, seems pretty simplistic. Parlay bets, one of my favorite things, I mention them a lot, they're when you make multiple bets and you have to connect all legs of the bet. So no matter what type of bet it is, you have to win. So a five-leg parlay means you have to bet five games correctly, essentially. Those things are incredibly difficult to do, but, well, they're incredibly difficult to do for other people. Not so much for me. That's me. But the point is, a parlay bet is a combination bet. I bet these two teams will win. 
or these two teams will go over, or these teams will cover the spread. Plus or minus. Cover the spread. Plus or minus. So those are some of the things you'll hear. Teaser bet is a parlay bet with adjusted odds. What are adjusted odds? Let's say that a game is minus 10 like we discussed. 100 to 90. But I'm not confident in the minus 9 spread that Team A has. And I think they'll cover 5. I can adjust the odds down to minus 5. I won't win as much money. But I might win the bet where I would have otherwise lost it. Now, anyone who didn't know anything about gambling, but just listened to all that and was able to follow all of it, should send me a DM immediately because you're a smart person and I want you to do the math and help me gamble. One interesting gambling note, Mark Stein tweeted that uh, we're close to 50-50 at home. I don't know the exact numbers, but home in a way, in terms of basketball this season, we're almost 50-50. And it seems like essentially what we've learned is that Home court advantage literally is lost without fans. And this was something that I talked about on the previous podcast that's on YouTube, especially in relation to the bubble. When you don't have fans, the game changes in many ways. But I think it changes in ways that people aren't aware. Now, number one, obviously in the bubble, everything was different because in the bubble, we weren't traveling. Everyone was just going back to their room. The food was controlled. There were, you know, there's less roster turnover because of, you know, the number of quarantine days that it takes to get someone in. There were fewer teams. Everything was just a more controlled, simplistic environment. But two things from that environment remain. Number one, no fans. And number two, no fan effect on the referees. Star calls and star officiating very often comes from the fan pressure on refs to make certain calls. We can't be stupid. Referees are human. It's part of the game. In baseball, they refer to it as the human element. And the human element exists in basketball too. And it comes from the Lakers' super loud crowd booing you every time LeBron gets touched and doesn't get a foul call. Or the Lakers' super loud crowd Booing you every time LeBron doesn't get touched and get a foul call, but in Phoenix, because we have no home court advantage. (laughs) That was a savage joke at my own team's expense. I'm sorry, but I do a lot of hating, and we as Suns fans need to do a better job of filling the arena, and uh, the Suns need to do a better job of winning so that we actually do fill the arena. So that's a joke at all of us, but uh, it was well-deserved because of how often you go to a Suns game and have to deal with other people rooting for your team. The point is, Teams that have home court advantage are, they benefit from it in one way or another. Having people there screaming, having 16,000 people scream at three referees certainly can't hurt your odds. Especially if everyone in the arena agrees that a player on this team was given a raw deal on one play. 
It's just how it goes. And so what has truly happened with the bubble and now this season is that we are reducing those effects. And we're literally just watching guys play basketball in a gym. And in a lot of ways, that legitimizes the Lakers title a lot more, which is what Dane Lillard said. No travel, so everyone's healthier. Um, A lot more focused energy on basketball, so there's less distractions. All of that made for better basketball. And that legitimizes the Lakers title more than it hurts it. Now, you know, LeBron called it one of the two hardest titles of all time, this and his other one against the, the Warriors. I'm not so sure about either of those two. Um, but it certainly legitimizes the difficulty of the title and the legitimacy of the championship team. I don't know about the all-time rankings. We'd have to think about that, but it certainly legitimizes this as, you know, for anyone who said a bubble champion wasn't a real champion, that's nonsense. You know, we saw how good the Nuggets were when Jamal Murray was able to play without those elements. We saw how good... Donovan Mitchell was whenever whenever he was able to play without those elements. And some of it is the enclosed nature of it all. Donovan Mitchell isn't playing that well to start the season. So there are arguments for and against. And I'm not saying that fans make or break everything related to everything. I'm just saying that when guys are hooping in a gym, it's different than when guys are hooping in front of anywhere from five to 20,000 people. It's just different. For a whole plethora of reasons. And it doesn't make it better or worse, and it doesn't make it more or less accurate. It just means that the game is different. And if home court advantage is mostly taken away right now, who is the better team should truly rise up. And that's a perfect segue into the best team in the NBA right now, and that's my Phoenix Suns. 5-1. and one. The only 5-1 and one team in the NBA. And whether or not this turns out to them being, you know, the number one seed in the West or the number six seed in the West or the number whatever seed, it doesn't matter. But the point is, six games into the season, the Suns are kicking ass in a way that I anticipated that they would. And it's exciting to see all that. On the flip side of that, I anticipated the Wizards to be a good team in the East and they're garbage. Bradley Beal scores 53 the other night. They lose, and you could see the look on Beal's face that roughly translated said, get me fucking anywhere but Washington. They won, I think, the next night, but we mentioned Scott Brooks' hot seat. Bradley Beal's seat is hot, too. Not because something's wrong with him, but because he's about to pick that seat up, smash it into the ground, and demand a trade elsewhere. So. For all the ups, there's downs. But the ups for the Suns are phenomenal. And I don't even know how to describe. The thing is, is that so many people don't understand where we've come from. This team was 8-24 and a few years ago. And just think about that for a minute. Starting 8-24, you're garbage. So many people that Devin Booker have played with over the years aren't even in the league anymore. And now the team is 5-1. and one. This team is different. This team is real. The only loss this team has this year was by three points. And in this game, 
against the Nuggets. Everything went wrong in the fourth quarter. The Suns couldn't score down the stretch. They drew fouls constantly. Gary Harris was soccer flopping all over the place and drawing fouls on Booker on offense. Nothing was working. Nothing. The Suns looked screwed. And yet they won. Because Devin Booker and Chris Paul took over in the final couple of minutes and got the job done. Paul hits a sick jumper on uh, on the on the wing. Booker hits a triple. Like everything broke. And they still found a way to win. And it just reminds me of it just makes me think of so many things. It makes me think of the Jeff Hornacek years when a scout once described the Suns' offense as AAU basketball. It reminds me of the Dan Tony years when all the pick and roll and three point shooting in the world couldn't compensate for no one knowing who should take the shot in the clutch. And now it's incredibly clear. Chris Paul and Devin Booker are going to take the shots in the clutch. It's going to be one of those two. And there's so many things that, so many simple things that you only notice if you're looking or if you really care. You know, if you're watching the Suns play once every few weeks, you won't notice. But, you know, again, the Hornacek thing, the D'Antoni thing, with with D'Antoni, it was all about pick and roll. With Hornacek, it was all about, I honestly have no idea. Just I don't even know what the hell the offense was. But now, you know, last night you watch a play where Jay Crowder comes off a screen, grabs a pass at the elbow from Javon Carter that Chris Paul just whipped him from the opposite wing. And it's it's like a three-motion play just to get a little itty-bitty itty mid-range elbow jumper. It's not ultra-complicated. It's not for your best player. It's It's just basic stuff. But it's more complex offense than we've ever seen with the Suns. And they're on another level. And there's chemistry. And sometimes you would say to yourself, okay, we've brought in Chris Paul. We've brought in Javon Carter. We need to be concerned about the potential for how do we get these guys into into the system and get them to have chemistry with everyone else. Well, guess what? They have all the chemistry in the fucking world because they're pros. They know exactly what Monty Williams wants to do. They both have history with Monty Williams. They know him. And, you know, you look at the result of this. And when you have all of this, plus ferocious defense, and make no mistake, this team is playing ferocious defense, you have a really, really, really good team. And that is what this is. This is a really, really, really good team. No one may have wanted to accept that. No one maybe wanted to believe it going into the season, but it's where we are. And I'm going to say one thing right here that I think people are going to go absolutely insane over. Now, first thing, I want to give credit here. Um, Twitter user, I apologize if I'm pronouncing this wrong. The, it's it's at X-I-N-N-B-A. I believe it's Zin at Zin NBA at X-I-N-N-B-A. I believe it at Zin NBA. I apologize if that's wrong. In any case, he posted a stat that said that DeAndre Ayton is holding defenders 
to a 14.6% lower shooting percentage within six foot of the rim. And in this game against the Nuggets, DeAndre took the game over. He grabbed multiple rebounds, offensive and defensive. He muscled out Jokic. He had tip-ins. He got fouled. DeAndre was doing everything. Everything. And when you look at that number, 14.6% lower within six feet of the rim, that means that DeAndre is a supreme rim protector. Because he's literally taking away your opportunities to score at the rim better than basically everyone in the NBA at that point. Not better than Rudy Gobert, maybe not better than Joel Embiid, but this whole idea of he's a negative defensive asset, he's bad, that's not true. Just look at the numbers. And so, for all of the concern about his defense, and for all of this concern about the Suns' inability to close games, both of those things occurred today in phenomenal fashion. DeAndre closed the game out. The Suns closed the game out. DeAndre on defense, Chris Paul and Devin Booker on offense. And this team is for real. And here's what I want to say about DeAndre Ayton. I want the Defensive Player of the Year discussion. I want it. I want him to be in the Defensive of the Player of the Year discussion. And I understand that how unlikely that is and how questionable that is for some people. But go watch DeAndre Ayton play. Go watch what he has done. Go see the times that he's guarded some of the best players in the league. I mean, he shut Giannis down in front of me in person. DeAndre Ayton is a much better defender than anyone gives him credit for. And at this point of the season, anchoring the defense of the best team in the league, he needs to be in the Defensive Player of the Year discussion. It's real, and people need to talk about it, and I'm not going to stop demanding it until people talk about it. By the way, fuck Nikola Jokic. Not because I don't love him as a player, I do. Not because I don't respect him, I do. But I had Suns minus three and a half. The spread was Suns plus three and a half. I alt-spreaded it to minus three and a half, so I juiced it to increase my odds. And the Suns were up four with like ten seconds left. And of course... Jokic fires the most wet three ball ever that splashes through. And the Suns win by three. Fuck Nikola Jokic, man. Speaking of which, TJ Warren, out indefinitely. I don't know why fuck Nikola Jokic is speaking of TJ Warren, but news. We're going to see if TJ Warren... Being out means that Oladipo is really back. Because this is going to give Oladipo the opportunity to be the focal point of the wing offense for the Pacers again. And maybe it's just going to be Brogdon and Sabonis with Turner, you know, and maybe, but we've been waiting. Is Oladipo back? Is Oladipo back? Well, TJ Warren being gone means now we might really see. And... I'm not trying to silver lining this. I'm not trying to. It's just worthy of noting. That this is a time where we're going to see where Oladipo is at. Because that could really affect the free agent market next summer. 
couple quick thoughts on the Pistons. Um, watch the Pistons beat the Celtics the other night. Interesting game. I had a few thoughts on that one that I think matter long-term for both teams. First thing, I mean, Killian Hayes needs to shoot a 1,000 jumpers a day. Let's just be honest. He needs to shoot 500 in the morning and he needs to shoot 500 at night. Just is what it is. But this is... This is the only option with this guy. Last year at Ohm, I'm not making this up. I'm not, this is not my scouting information. This is just the generally known information. So I don't want to make this seem like I'm coming across as, oh, Mr. Whatever. Everyone knows that playing in Germany last year at Ohm, he had the run of the show and could do anything he wanted to do. We all know that. The turnovers weren't an issue. The shooting percentage wasn't an issue. Ohm didn't care. They wanted him there. And they were willing to put up with all of that. So anyone who didn't, I see a bunch of people who are kind of jumping off the Killian Hayes thing right now. And anyone who sort of anticipated that this was going to be quick, <laughs> you're missing the point. This was always a long-term project. And I see a lot of people sort of like Kendall Marshall jokes and things like that. And those people are missing the point because this is a real athlete with elite court vision. And he needs to learn how to score at this level. He has all the tools, but has no clue how to score in this league. And this guy may not ever score 25 a game. You know, he may not be an elite scorer, but you're talking about a dude who has all the tools to get buckets and no clue how to get them or where to get them. That can be worked with. Because his passing and his size and his athleticism, like, here's the thing. I've always been out on Dante Exum. And so, I, so I'm so i very well aware that the size and athleticism thing means nothing if you can't shoot. But watch the mechanics. Watch the flow. Watch the way it's there. And I really think that there's Chauncey Billups in here or Jason Kidd in here. Maybe not to those guys' level, but Chauncey Billups took a while. Jason Kidd didn't. But Killian is physically bigger than these dudes. You know, Killian has, he's 6'5 with 6'8 wingspan. I mean, he's got, you know, he can guard maybe not all of the best wings, but he can guard most of the point guards. And he's got an optimal wingspan for shooting. I mean, it just... It's... I believe in that. And I know that a lot of people want a whatever. And I, again, I see the jokes and I understand the jokes and I understand why some people... I get that. But... He really can be more than this. Vision is so rare on the court. And vision is a lot of the reason why Luka Doncic can be an elite player despite shooting 32% from three. Same thing for Giannis. As much as can be said about his size, he also is a solid passer and knows how and where to attack and all these things. Vision is incredibly critical. 
Jason Kidd could never really shoot except for the one Maverick season where they won the title, but nonetheless, he went to multiple NBA finals and was an elite player without being a shooter because he had phenomenal vision. And that's, Killian Hayes has that. Now, the shot is bad. The misses are weird. He's got so much to learn. But he's so young. You know, we forget, like, some of these guys are like five and six years apart almost. Like, it might take a guy five years to literally, truly become a really good NBA player. And we sometimes just have unrealistic expectations for these 19-year-olds. Now, you draft a guy seventh, maybe you have higher expectations. Uh, You know, again, I understand all these things, but I really think that anyone who anticipated this that this first month with a rookie who is this young, who just spent a year playing overseas when he played all through every turnover – With like no training camp and no summer league. Anyone who is jumping on. You're just missing the point. There is something special in that kid. And I just want people to focus. See that. And he'll get there. I mean he's got better measurements than Chauncey Billups. So why can't he? Physically he can do all of those things. But it's just going to take more work. And that's always been the point. I see a lot of talk on Twitter about some of the choices the Pistons made in free agency this offseason. Two things. Number one, I never thought it was weird that Jeremy Grant wanted a bigger offensive role or that Jeremy Grant couldn't provide more on offense. I think we all knew that. Like, the idea that he was only a three-point shooter and nothing else on offense is wrong, given that historically he wasn't even that good of a shooter. He was always an athletic player. And so, wanting a bigger role was never shocking. It shocked me that he took the same money for a bigger role when he could have been competing for a title with the Nuggets. That did surprise me. And the Nuggets clearly need him right now, by the way. And maybe that was the frustration, is that the Nuggets didn't offer him more. Maybe that's what it boils down to. But I always thought it was strange that he would choose a team that ultimately was not going to win anything. But in this game against the Celtics, he was in his bag. Jeremy Grant was going off the dribble. He hit jumpers. He hit some crossovers. He went you know, to the rack and drew fouls. He was doing everything. And he was showing that he's got more game than anyone anticipated. Now, again, having more game on the Pistons and winning 15 to 20 games... You know, fine. But I I don't think it's I don't think it's strange to point out that that was a weird choice to make for a guy who just played in the Western Conference Finals to go to a team with no chance of winning. It's just interesting. Doesn't make it a bad choice. Just an interesting choice. The Mason Plumley signing, though, I think is dumb. And I think that people don't understand that teams and agents do favors for each other. And this is a Mark Bartlestein favor, and no one could ever convince me otherwise. Ask Jared Dudley. Mark Bartlestein is the best agent at the NBA for the mid-level guy. Anyone can negotiate a max contract. Okay, you and I can negotiate a max contract. Okay? 
If Jason Tatum had been my client right now, it would have been so easy for me to negotiate a max contract. Because here's how that negotiation goes. Max contract. And then you sit there and wait for them to agree. That's it. Anyone can negotiate for the best guys. But the mid-level dudes? The guys who have to use player comparisons and, you know, really good free agency situations and leverage. Those people need Mark Bottlestein. And <laughs> Mason Plumley has not been on Team USA forever because he's worth it. He's there because of his connection to Coach K. And he did not get a bunch of money from the Pistons because it was a perfect situation and blah, 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 etc. He got a bunch of money from the Pistons because there wasn't a bunch of money available. And there's no chance that Mason Plumlee is going to be there long term. So he got a reasonable money that can be traded to another team. And now the next time the Pistons are in a position to have a free agency discussion and Mark Bartlestein has a major player who he will be in the position to say, hey, I have a good relationship with the Pistons. That's what this is. I understand that you have to reach the salary floor. That's fine. But there was no reason to sign 18 bigs. Unless one of those bigs is well regarded throughout the league by contenders, but is out of their range. And an agent just happens to know how to leverage that to a bad team that could theoretically flip him later. And that's what this is. And I wish that people would just see that. It's not a, it's not a bad decision. You can trade that contract. There's nothing wrong with it. But there's a lot of people who believe that the Pistons signed Mason Plumley simply because of his pick and roll, whatever. It is a favor to Mark Barlstein as much as it is anything else. You could have found any number of people to do what Mason Plumley is going to do for this team for much less money. This is a favor to an agent, which is smart when it's a major agent who can help guide players to your team later. So look at it in the positive sense, but look at it in the positive sense through the positive lens of what it actually is. A favor to an agent who can help you, not a free agency signing designed to help your 12-win team. I'm not trying to insult anybody because I see many, many people saying the same thing. So this is not directed at anyone in particular. Many, many people have have thought these same things. And I love Pistons Twitter, so I see a lot of this stuff. And I'm friendly with Pistons Twitter. And I respect the hell out of Pistons Twitter. But I think some people in Pistons Twitter, no one in particular, I've seen 20 to 30 to 40 people say the same things, essentially. But I think some people are missing the point that this is way more of an agent favor than it is a great signing. The Jeremy Grant contract, I understand from the Pistons' perspective. You have to spend money. Why not get better? Why not get a good player to pair with Killian Hayes? It makes complete sense. I never had an issue with the Jeremy Grant signing from the Pistons' perspective. It always made sense. The Mason Plumley signing makes no sense, unless it's a favor to an agent. These are the differences. That's really my point that I'm making. Jeremy Grant can do... Really, everything that Mason Plumley can do and more. So why would you sign both of them? If your argument is simply salary floor, fine. That contract can be flipped. And that's an agent favor. And that's what I think. And I think that that's the other thing, too, is you have to be able to separate all of these transactions. 
if the Pistons didn't want to play Luke Kennard and didn't like his medicals, then flipping all the things they did to get Sadiq Bey is fine if you really love Sadiq Bey. And maybe you're right or wrong about that, but that's not the point. The point is that you make the moves you have to make to get the players that you want to get yourself in the situation that you want. If you want to add Jeremy Grant because you want him to play with Killian Hayes and you have to spend money, I have no problem with that. If you want to bring in Sadiq Bey because you don't think that you're going to have Luke Kennard long-term and you want to pay a couple of extra second-round picks to do that, I have no problem with that. If you want to bring in Mason Plumley because it's a favor to an agent and you can flip that contract later and have favorable negotiations with the player later because of that agent, I have no problem with that. Just don't try to sell that to me as a phenomenal free agency signing because of pick and roll, blah, blah, etc. It's not what it is. It's my only point. But by the way, do agent favors, especially when you're bad. You should do all the agent favors in the world. You should. From the Celtics' perspective on this game, the Jalen Brown thing is fucking real, man. There's no more question about that at this point, as far as I'm concerned. The Jalen Brown leap is very real. And the only question the Celtics have is, how do we maximize the future around Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum? Because there's discussion about, and even I have I have said, if you can trade Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown for James Harden, you do that because Harden and Tatum is an unstoppable offensive pairing. But given the leap that Jalen Brown is taking right now and the trajectory of Brown and Tatum, those two guys are on the same long-term curve. And Marcus Smart is really on the same curve as well. He's a little older, but not much. And, I mean, essentially the problem becomes Kemba Walker. You got to figure out what to do there. He's not healthy. He's not playing. He kind of fits perfectly for what these guys are. If he was ever healthy, he would fit. But long term, that could be the issue. But for all the mistakes Danny Ainge has made in terms of not making this trade or making this trade or whatever... The leap that Jalen Brown is taking right now essentially washes most of that away. Because if you have a forward or a wing combo that plays together in their prime from age, you know, like 25 to 35, these two at that point would theoretically play together 15 years, really. If you have that combo of guys and they're able to play this well off each other, then the only question becomes, how do you put pieces around them? And for all of the mistakes and, you know, we make jokes and all those things, the Celtics do have it. They've got two. The problem is, like, they were supposed to have four. You know, Danny has churned and churned and churned and churned and done this and that and made all these moves and ultimately it hasn't worked out how they want, but they have the most important two. Whereas before it looked like they had maybe four above average. Now it looks like they might have two elite. Or they may have had three above average and one elite before. Now they might have two elite. If you have two elite players, 
You're in everything. Now, there's no chance you're trading for James Harden without including Jalen Brown. So, you know, any hopes of some sort of Marcus Smart and Kemba for James Harden and PJ Tucker or whatever, you know, that's not happening without 10 first round picks or some, you know, some ludicrous number that's not possible. Um, but the Celtics, Josh Eberly said it, and I agree with him. The way that, that Jalen Brown is playing, there's no world in which he should be traded for James Harden. He's right. It shouldn't happen. And there's no world in which there could be a trade package constructed for Harden without Jalen Brown. So that's off the table. But the most important thing for the Celtics is that for all the mistakes they have made, Jalen Brown was a success. And as far as Harden goes, I mean, the Warriors even got blown out by the Blazers. So if you can't play with this Blazers team, I mean, trade for Harden or you're done. Okay, before we get out of here, I was telling my mother how much I hate different sports teams. And she gave me the greatest idea in the world. And I'm going to stick with this for my end of week shows. This is my mixed media hate list of the week. This is my hate power rankings for teams that I really hate. And this is just me being really incredibly petty. That's all this is. So if you're sipping the haterade or whatever, you're going to enjoy this. Number one, the New York Jets. They're going to be at the top of every hate power rankings, probably. No matter what the Jets do, no matter who they hire, no matter who they sign, I fucking hate the New York Jets. I've always hated the New York Jets, and that will always be the case. They're terrible. Their fans are terrible. Their media is terrible. Their organization is terrible. Their coaches are terrible. Their players are terrible. Their best player ever, Darrell Rivas, only won a Super Bowl playing with the New England Patriots. Everything about the Jets sucks. They're the absolute fucking worst. I hate them. They're miserable. I love it when they suffer, and I love all the things that are going wrong. They can't even tank correctly. Okay, they had Trevor Lawrence, the highest regarded quarterback prospect since Peyton Manning, since Andrew Luck, the guy that everyone thought was number one, that was the key franchise changer. They had him in their sights. They had him in their grasp. They had him in their hands and they threw it away multiple fucking times. The Jets are a joke of an organization. Joe Namath being in the Hall of Fame because he won one football game before anyone actually knew how football worked is one of the dumbest things in history. Everything the Jets have ever done has been stupid. Everything they ever will be is stupid. The only thing that the Jets have ever done cool or well was the time that Herm Edwards went on ESPN or went on the post-game show, whatever, and made the you play to win the game speech. So the one time in Jets history, that they did something cool is when their coach went on TV to make a speech about what fucking losers they were. And sure, that inspired them to win a bunch of games and then move on to lose in the playoffs and lose everything for the next decade. The Jets suck. They'll always suck. Fuck the New York Jets. And by the way, If my movie ever gets made and I win an Oscar, that's my Oscar speech. Number two on my hate power rankings, Notre Dame. It is sexual for me when Notre Dame gets destroyed. And Alabama beating up on Notre Dame, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I love it so much. 
I fucking hate Notre Dame. I hate everything about them. I hate everything about the fact that they're paid into media organizations. I hate everything about the fact that their fans are sanctimonious douchebags. They're Trump-supporting, COVID-denying morons. I hate everything about Notre Dame, from their stupid Golden Dome uniforms to their ugly-ass Navy tops. I hate everything about this fucking school. I hate Joe Montana, and I hate the fact that he's so overrated as a quarterback. I hate every single thing about the school, Notre Dame. I hate their basketball team. I hate their football team. I hate their coaches. I hate their announcers. I hate their connection to NBC. I fucking hate Notre Dame. And it tickles me pink when they get fucked up by anyone, by Alabama, by... It doesn't matter who it is. Well, when it's Michigan, I basically drink, drink, drink the whole day away because I'm so thrilled. But let me tell you something. There is nothing in this world that makes me happier than the failure of fucking Notre Dame. Fuck Notre Dame and fuck Brian Kelly. And thank you, Alabama. Thank you. Number three on the list, the Spurs. Well, 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 the Spurs. This is more about long-term hatred than it is anything recent. Because the Spurs actually haven't done anything recently that actually matters. But boy, have they fucked up the Suns so many times that I once went to a Suns playoff game and made a throat slash gesture at Roger Mason. So that's the kind of guy that I am. That's the kind of hatred that I have for the Spurs. And it's never going to fucking go away. As much as I respect Tim Duncan, as much as I respect Greg Popovich and Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker and Becky Hammond, I fucking hate anyone who is a Spurs fan. I literally won't associate with them. I've ended friendships finding out that people were Spurs fans. And I can only think of one person in my entire life who I tolerate to this day that calls himself a Spurs fan. And that's because they don't even actually watch basketball. Okay. And even that I've had to question it many occasions. Someone who would refer to themselves as a Spurs fan is a person who says, I don't care about cheating. I don't care about people who would step on the nuts, step on the the <laughs> step on the feet or knee in the nuts, my players, fuck everything. Because that's what Bruce Bowen used to do. Watching him absolutely injure the shit out of Suns players over and over. Boy, I wanted to punch that motherfucker in the face. And let me tell you something else. If I ever had the opportunity to do so, I'd probably run away because I think that Bruce Bowen would punch me in the nuts while I was trying to punch him in the face. Fuck that guy. That's how I feel about that. Fuck everyone who was ever a part of the Spurs organization. Monty Williams' son's coach spent a year as part of the Spurs organization, so I'm going to have to let that one slide. But aside from that, I hate the Spurs. And they're number three on the hate power rankings. Number four, the Lakers. Again, more long-term hatred than anything else. There's just no way to be a Suns fan and not hate the Lakers and hate everything about them. I can respect, and I do respect the Lakers. Kobe Bryant is a person who was questionable at times off the court, but an absolute killer on the court. Shaq is a monster that all of us know. The list goes on and on. But nonetheless, fuck the Lakers and fuck all of their fans. And then finally, number five, Ohio. And I refuse to call them by whatever name it is they're given. So if you don't know who I'm talking about when I say Ohio, then that's your own fucking problem. Fuck that team. I'm so disappointed that Clemson couldn't handle them. But I will say this. It is super funny that golden boy Trevor Lawrence, Mr. I don't care about COVID, I want to play, blah, 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 blah. Mr. Perfect whatever. 
It's super funny that he lost his last game, and I'm going to tell you why. Because the only thing in the world that would be funnier than everything that has happened in this world that has made us laugh at these idiot, douchebag, COVID-denying sports players when they lose is if Trevor Lawrence somehow ends up falling to number two to the New York Jets because he lost to Ohio. (laughs) Oh, he thought he got away. And then he couldn't perform. And somehow now the Jaguars are going to talk themselves into Justin Fields or someone else. And Trevor Lawrence is going to fall to number two to the Jets. <laughs> the only people in the world who could ruin Trevor Lawrence are the Jets. And that's the Blunt Doctor Show on a weekend. Let me tell you one thing about 2021. It is what you make it. If you choose not to wear a mask and you choose to congregate and go to super spreader events and not take anything seriously, your life will be miserable. If you choose to take this virus seriously and at least do your best to avoid as much connection as possible, we're all gonna run into people. We're all going to have to go to the store. We're all going to see family. But do your best. Wear a mask. Sanitize. Shower. Avoid super spreader events. Do your best. And if you do your best, we're going to put this shit away quicker. And if on top of that, we all work together to reform this world for the better, then we can follow up the worst year of all of our existence with One of the best years of all of our existence. No more infighting. No more hatred. No more bullshit. Let's focus. And let's be positive. And let's enjoy the Blood Doctor show in 2021. Peace.